church. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and open in prayer, please. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for a wonderful Savior. Lord, I don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. You're a gracious God and you're a merciful God, and I thank you tonight for both. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege we have to worship you together. Lord, for the privilege we have to look into your word together. Lord, thank you again tonight for the wonderful privilege we have to uh, open our Bibles and to see your very words translated to English and preserved for us to this very day. Lord, what a privilege. I pray tonight that you will help us to see uh, what you want us to see. Father, I pray tonight that you'll help me uh, to bring your words uh, clearly and, Lord, to honor your intention uh, in giving them to us. Father, I love you tonight. Thank you. I pray that your people would be instructed by you, uh, built up in your words, and encouraged, uh, encouraged tonight. Lord, thank you. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Judges uh, chapter 14 tonight. Judges uh, chapter 14. We're continuing to make our way through the book of Judges. And uh, if you're visiting tonight, that's kind of what we do here. Uh, we understand the Bible is all God's words and that we need all of them. We need all of them. So uh, very often on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, we're in the Old Testament. But Gary, we're normally in the New Testament on Sunday mornings, right? So we're uh, trying to uh, get a good mix, a good balance of different parts of the Bible here in our church. I think that's important. Uh, that's important. Here we're in uh, Judges, one of the Old Testament history books. We believe this is accurate history, uh, literal history uh, recorded by God. Uh, but Gary, not, not just like a dusty old history book, right? It's, it's, it's actual literal history, but God's recorded it for us. Uh, yes, so that we can know the history of his people, um, but also so that we can observe principles that we can, with God's help, apply uh, to our own life. Aren't you glad that we have that privilege tonight to be able to learn the history, but to also understand with God's help the principles that apply these many hundreds of years later? I'm grateful for that. So you recall last week in the book of uh, Judges, chapter 13, uh, we began looking at the life of Samson. Uh, I was reminded tonight that uh, for most of my life, Brother Garcia, I think I've pronounced it Samson, which is just wrong. Samson, <laughs> there's no P in there, Samson, uh, not, not in this man's name at least. Uh, we saw his birth last week, and we saw uh, God kind of had me focus last week on, on his dad's response and how teachable uh, his dad seemed to be, and how faithful also his mom was. And uh, we saw God inform them that they would have this baby boy, uh, really miraculously. Mom had been barren. She had been unable to have a baby. Uh, and God also told them, you recall, that uh, Samson would observe the Old Testament Nazarite vow from the womb forward uh, through all of his life. And you remember the purpose of that vow was to set someone apart for special dedication to God and to his service. And there were certain outward marks of that, right? They didn't cut their hair. 
they didn't uh, eat uh, grapes or drink wine. They didn't touch dead bodies. And uh, those were all outward marks or visible signs of an inward dedication, a special commitment, uh, a special uh, dedication to God and to his service. Gary, normally it don't, that vow was only taken and observed for 30 days, but for Samson, uh, it was for life. It was for life. Now, we'll see tonight that he did not perfectly honor uh, various aspects of the vow. Uh, I'm going to be kind of hard on Samson tonight, sister, but it's so that we can see some tendencies in our own sin nature and be reminded to stand guard against those things with God's help. And, you know, God has recorded uh, Samson's mistakes for our benefit, for our instruction, right? So uh, we will be hard on him tonight, but Gary, as I, as I point to him, I'm reminded that three more fingers point back at me, right? I have, the same, I have the same sin nature, you do too. If you know Christ is your savior, you have a new nature also, uh, but we have many of the same uh, sinful tendencies nonetheless that are part of the spiritual battle that we're in. So uh, with that said, let's jump in here tonight, Judges 14. Uh, see here, we'll read the first three verses. Here we find Samson uh, desiring a Philistine or a Philistine wife. This is a problem. Let's see this here. Uh, Judges 14, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says Samson went down to uh, Timnath. This is probably the same place that's elsewhere called Timnah. Uh, in 2 uh, Samuel, I believe, Gary, uh, the Bible records the Philistines had conquered, they had invaded and conquered this place, assuming that Timnath and Timnah are the same place. Anyway, Samson goes there. Uh, this would be a place in Judah. Um, he saw a woman. He saw a woman uh, in Timnath uh, of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, you remember very well that the Philistines are not godly people, right? These are pagan people. Uh, they don't know the Lord. They don't worship the Lord. They have their own false gods, idols that they worship. Uh, these people that uh, Samson would have done well to stay separated from, right? Not that God prohibited him from going there and maybe sharing the truth about the Lord and God's word and who the true God is. That would have been fine, but, but going there just kind of because you were curious or uh, maybe he was looking for a wife, I, I don't know. This is, this is unwise and uh, violates this principle of separation that, that God has called us to. Uh, verse 2, the Bible says this, He came up and told his father and mother and said, I have seen, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he says this, now therefore go, uh, well, he says, get her for me to wife. I want to marry her. Uh, you go and get her so that I can marry her. Now, uh, today that seems kind of odd, right, Gary? Today, you know, if you find someone you want to marry, hopefully you pray about it and do well to maybe get your parents' advice, but you wouldn't ask your parents today to go and arrange that, right? But that was the custom in, in, in Samson's day, evidently, to have parents arrange uh, the marriage. So right here, it seems like everything's okay. He's, well, sort of. Uh, he's, he's simply honoring the custom of parents arranging marriages. Everything is not okay, but 
uh, he's at least honoring that custom. Look at verse 3. Bible says, then his father and mother said unto him, is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren? Isn't there someone of your own people uh, that you could marry someone who knows the Lord and who worships him as opposed to these uh, godless pagan people? Uh, or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised pagan uh, Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, uh, get her for me. Uh, for she pleaseth me well. She pleaseth me well. The underlying language has a literal idea of she pleases my eyes. Now, do you, do you see some problems here? <laughs> do you see some problems here? Uh, Gary, we understand that God had raised up Samson to liberate his people from the oppression of the Philistines, right? Uh, he, he was to be the next judge, and, and God had raised up a number of judges already uh, to... Uh, lead the people typically in, in whatever kind of campaign was required to liberate them uh, from the oppression that God had allowed in order to correct them. And that's why the Philistines are ruling over them here, right? They had fallen into sin, uh, great sin. Uh, God allowed them to be um, oppressed by the Philistines to correct them, uh, to correct them. So now God's raising up Samson. Uh, in theory, to lead the people to repentance, to confess their sin, uh, and then to push out the, the Philistines. And instead, Samson is seen here uh, going and looking for a wife among them. Uh, this would seem to be pretty much the exact opposite of, of what God would desire. Now, there's a couple things here that are problematic. Um, couple things here are problematic. I already mentioned one. He probably would have been much better off, right, Zach, just staying away from that place. You know, just, just don't go to a place where you might be tempted uh, to do something that would be contrary to God's word. And he doesn't do that. He goes there, and the Bible says he saw a woman, verse 1. Verse 2, he says, I have seen a woman. Uh, verse 3, he says, get here for me, for she pleases me well. Literally in the Hebrew, she pleases my eye. It seems here to me, Gary, that rather than being led of the Lord, uh, he's being led of something else. Doesn't, this, doesn't that seem to be the case to you? Rather than looking to God, saying, hey, God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to go? Uh, tell, me, tell me more about this, this ministry to which you've called me. Uh, rather than being led of the Lord, he's being led of his lusts, right? And of course, in, in 1 John, we're, we're reminded the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride of life, and so forth. These, these, are, these are areas of temptation that we all deal with. And if we're not careful, we're led around by our own lusts rather than yielding to God and, uh, and asking God to um, lead us. And so this seemed to be the second problem. He's, he's very clearly being... Uh, led of the lust of the eyes. He saw a woman. He says, I have seen a woman. Uh, she pleases my eye. And, um, that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, there's a strong temptation we have to uh, be led by our lusts rather than our Lord. We need to stand guard against that temptation. Do you see any other problems here? Any, any other problems? And I said I'm going to be hard on Samson, and I am, but, but I believe God would have us to see these things. Uh, what else? He's, he's at the wrong place, uh, looking, looking upon the wrong lady, uh, clearly not, not a lady that God wanted him to have um, as a wife. Uh, is, there, is there anything else here that you see that, that's uh, problematic biblically, scripturally? Uh, how's he doing with his parents? 
Is he being respectful to his parents here? Uh, what do you think? Is, is he? Not really, no. He's, he's, not, he's not interacting with his parents in a biblically honorable uh, way. I think when he first says to them, get her for me, that's not necessarily a problem. Again, he may simply be honoring the custom of arranged marriages. Uh, but then they step in in verse 3 and they say, oh, 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 oh. Hold on a second, isn't there a wife for you among God's people? Uh, isn't there a wife for you that, that, and why do they say that? Well, well, they say that because the Lord specifically instructed his people not to make marriages with these pagan Canaanite people, right? It's not an issue of prejudice or, or looking down on someone because they're different, they have a different background. No, God said don't do that. He's, he's commanded his people to not make marriages uh, with people who don't know the Lord. Uh, the Lord said this back in Deuteronomy 7, when the, uh, the Lord shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, uh, and, and hath cast out many nations before thee. He lists the nations. He says, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Don't do that. God said he would be angered by that, uh, and he would destroy uh, the guilty ones suddenly. That's what the Bible says. God had spoken very uh, very clearly uh, and, and, and firmly and, and even harshly uh, about his desire that his people would remain separate, there would be a difference, uh, and that they, they not literally wed themselves to false people. Gary, why is that? Why was God so concerned about that? It's because he knew that if they would do that, uh, those uh, marriages would pull them away from the Lord and, and pull them into false worship, right? And God, God understood that. Uh, God knows that. And so they counsel him, hey, don't you, don't you think that uh, there's a wife that would be a better one? Uh, and what's his response there at the end of verse 3? I think his, uh, I, you know, the words don't capture his tone, Gary, but I, but I think I can hear his tone. Uh, at the end of verse 3, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. You know, I, I, I said, go and get her. I'm not asking, I'm telling. That's not respectful. That's, that's not honoring his biblical obligation to honor his father and mother, uh, Deuteronomy 5. That's, that, that's a biblical obligation that he has. You know, I think that um, you probably make some assumptions here about uh, Samson's parents no doubt they loved him. You know, he was, he was a child that came after unexpectedly and, and miraculously. No doubt they had a great love for him. But Gary, I wonder if they spoiled him a little bit. I wonder if they spoiled him a little bit. You know, it seems like he's learned that if he'll just keep saying, get me what I want, he gets what he wants. Uh, I wonder if his parents, now it's not an excuse for him to be dishonoring his parents, you know, uh, there's, there's, never, there's always an explanation for sin, but there's never an excuse for sin. Amen? There's always an explanation. Uh, he's been tempted by the lust of the eyes. That's the explanation. Not an excuse, though. Uh, he's he's uh, mouthing off to his parents. Well, they probably spoiled him and, and in, didn't intend to, but thereby encouraged him uh, to develop a, a bad habit of uh, interacting with his parents. That, that's probably the, un, the explanation, but it's, it's not an excuse. Uh, it's sin. Uh, it's sin. Look with me at verse four, please. Uh, verse four is is um, you know you look at it and you say uh, I don't quite know what to make of it, but I think as much as it's hard, it is it's key to understanding the passage. Uh, look here. Verse four says this. But his father and mother knew not that it was of the Lord 
that he, sought an, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. We know that. So there's, you know, different people have interpreted this verse different ways. Uh, Carol, it would seem, sister, that, that Samson is, he's rebelling against his parents, and he's rebelling against God. And he's looking, someone said he's, he's looking to have a wedding instead of going to war, which is undoubtedly what God wanted him to do. Uh, there's a very rebellious uh, situation uh, being pictured here. May I ask you this, Gary, can, can God accomplish what he wants to accomplish uh, even in the rebellion of his people? Does God have the strength and power and sovereignty to do that? He does. Is that his preferred way of accomplishing things? No, it's not. Uh, it certainly isn't. Uh, God would prefer that his people obey him and uh, be led by him and, and, and do those things that he prefers. But uh, even when we don't, God will still accomplish his will. He's a sovereign God. He has absolute power. He, it's not his preferred way uh, to work in our rebellion, but he can when he needs to, when he chooses to, uh, to work in our rebellion. And I think that's exactly what verse 4 is alluding to here. Uh, God will accomplish what God desires to accomplish, whether Samson chooses to be obedient to God and to his parents uh, or not. Well, we'll see. We'll see some of that before uh, the passage is done here tonight. Look at verse 5. Samson and his parents traveled to Timnath. Uh, then went Samson down and his father and his mother uh, to Timnath. Should, should his parents have been doing that? They should not have been. They, they knew what his intention was. They knew that his intention was directly opposite of the word of God. Uh, and, and yet they're doing exactly what uh, he demanded. He said, you go and, and, and arrange, get that girl for me. Uh, they knew it was wrong. They discouraged him uh, from doing that. And yet here they are going with him to do what he wants. This is bad parenting. Uh, this, is, this is not biblical parenting. This is uh, parents giving in to the wrong desires of a spoiled child, and that's not a good thing, uh, not a good thing at all. Parent, children, Gary, uh, I'm thankful tonight, children can be instructed and, and can learn to obey their parents uh, in Christ, right? And, and parents, although we naturally struggle to be good, godly, biblical parents, we can learn to be godly parents from God's words, and we can find strength in God to apply his words uh, to be godly biblical parents. This is, this is a failing here that we see on the part of the parents. They're giving in to the sinful desires uh, of, their, of their son. Well, uh, the second part of verse 5 says this. They came to the vineyards of Timnath. Uh, that's a problem. And behold, a young lion roared against him. Who's him? Who's him? Samson, right. Okay, so uh, there's a problem here. Well, there's two problems, right? You may say, yeah, there's a problem. There's a lion uh, after him. But isn't there a problem before that? Isn't there a problem here before that? The Holy Spirit has had those words about the vineyard captured here for some reason. Uh, it's not just to fill space, right, Zach? He didn't have a word count that he had to meet. Uh, it's not like that, right? So uh, he came, they came to the vineyards of Timnath. 
Was Samson supposed to be uh, in a vineyard, church? How come? They said no. How come? The Nazarite vow prohibited that, right? Uh, He was to refrain from drinking alcoholic wine as part of his Nazarite vow. And in fact, he was refrained to stay away from any kind of grapes at all as part of that vow. He was to be absolutely separate from uh, alcoholic wine and even the possibility of getting close to it and being tempted by that. Uh, We saw that when we looked at the Nazarite vow last week in scripture. And so here he is kind of off the path uh, in the vineyard. That's a problem. That's disobedience. That's dishonoring the vow Uh, that God had placed upon his life. Uh, So we've seen seen him uh, in the wrong place, looking for uh, the wrong wife, uh, acting wrongly toward his parents, uh, parents giving in, just nothing is right here, (laughs) right? Uh, Parents give in and and, and go to the wrong place with him, uh, and they end up in another wrong place, which dishonors another part of the vow, Uh, And then behold, uh, end of verse 5, what pops up? A lion roaring against him. Do you think that's a coincidence? Have you ever wondered about that? Do you think it was just, Carolyn, was it a coincidence that, uh, you know, Samson wanders into this place that he is absolutely not supposed to be, and what does he encounter there? A lion. I do not think that's a coincidence. And why do I say that? Do you, do you know? Do you, do, you have a, do you have a theory about that? Uh, why, why do I not think it's a coincidence? Gary, I, I don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say, but I'm just going to speculate for a moment if that's okay. Uh, do, do you think that it might be the case that, that God is, is kind of throwing up a roadblock to them staying on the wrong road? Do you think God is, is putting up a caution sign you know, God, God could have put up a sign that said, caution, you're disobeying me, turn back, go back home, uh, do what you're supposed to, pray, uh, God direct me. Uh, God didn't do that. He didn't put up a sign that gave explicit instructions like that, but he did put a lion in their way. Uh, and Carol, I, I could be wrong, but I, I think this is the Lord just throwing a trial into their path to say, you know what, what you're doing here is wrong. And uh, here, here's a, a, a good, well, a, a roaring, <laughs> a roaring message uh, to that effect. Um, it's pretty remarkable intervention on God's part, Gary, to place a roaring lion in his path. Uh, I, I'm guessing that was scary. Uh, you know, it's, it's scary to go to the zoo when they're behind bars, right? And they come up to you. The lion can eat you, right? Is that true? I think so, too. I think so, too. A lion, I mean, this, this, this is, I'm pretty sure that God's put the lion here to, to get their attention and cause them to realize that they are dishonoring and, and disobeying the Lord. And yet, and yet, there is a wonderful picture of God's grace here. You could, you could say, uh, listen, they're, they're, they're disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. Uh, so God sent a lion and the lion ate them. You would not necessarily be surprised, right? But in the next verse, there is a wonderful picture of God's grace. And uh, this is grace, I, I think, in both senses of the word. Um, God treating them better than they deserved as he treats us, 
and also giving the grace that is strength to do what needs to be done. Verse 6 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, uh, not Solomon, Samson, uh, and he rent him, he tore the lion uh, as he would have rent a kid, uh, little goat, uh, and had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father and his mother what, what he had done. So it's just him and the lion right here. I've been referring to the parents, but right here it's just, it's just him and the lion. Um, God graciously, did, did, he, did Samson deserve God to come and supernaturally enable him to defend himself? No, he did not deserve that. This is grace. Uh, this is grace. God has come and said, listen, you know, you're, you're, you're disobeying, but you're still my guy. You're the one I've chosen. I'm going to be gracious toward you and give you the grace that is strength to protect you uh, right now because he's still the one that, that God has chosen for this time. Um, and so the Lord graciously gives Samson power, strength to quite literally rent or tear uh, this line. Rent means tear, right? And it's implied that he literally tore it in half. It sounds kind of gross, but it's pretty awesome as well. It's pretty awesome as well. Um, now, you, you might think, Brother Art, at this point, that this would have been a wake-up call, right? You, you, you might think, you, you might hope that if it was you, that a lion in the, in the way coming after me, and then God giving me supernatural strength to deal with this trial, that would be a wake-up call, right? You, you would hope that we'd see that as God kind of putting his hand on our shoulder and shaking us a little bit and saying, or both shoulders, and saying, all right, do I have your attention now? It's time to go back home and, and get right with me. Um, look back over your own life. Think back over your own life just for a moment and just ask you to consider. Um, can you look back over your own life and see there were times where God allowed a trial as a wake-up call? And, and God protected you during that trial graciously, graciously. And your response to that trial was not turning back to the right road, but instead saying, everything's great. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do, and um, I, I, I was protected, and, and everything's great. I could just stay on the road I'm on. Can you look back, maybe when you were younger, and think, you know, that trial there was probably a wake-up call, and God graciously protected me, and I should have done it about face and, and went back to him, but instead I, I just took the, the grace uh, and stayed on the course that I should not have been on. That's what Saul, I'm going to keep saying Solomon, Zachary. The latter is what Samson did. Should have been corrected because this is a pretty big, you know, pretty powerful, literally, uh, wake-up call here. But he he chose, I th I believe, I believe we can see he chose to just focus on God's grace and say, you know, I can get away with whatever I want to. God's let me get away with this. He's protected me. I'll I'll just keep doing what I want. That may work for a while, but it doesn't work forever, does it? Church? It's not good forever, is it? Um, Samson continues down the wrong road. See that here in verse 7. He went down and talked with the woman, 
And she pleased him well, uh, the Bible says. She pleased him well. Um, Verse 8 says, After a time, uh, he returned to take her. So he's talked with her, and evidently he's left. And after a time, he comes back to take her in marriage. After a time, verse 8, he he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, the one he tore in half. Uh, There was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. Church, that sounds kind of gross. Amen? That sounds gross. Carol, is your first thought, let me get some of that honey? That's not my first thought. (laughs) It's not my first thought. But it was something that Samson desired. He's been um, influenced uh, by his eyes wrongly before. And, you know, he sees something sweet, the taste, and he wants it. He wants it. Verse 9, he took therein in his hands and went on eating. Uh, What did he use to do that, Brother Art? His hands. So he... What'd he do? He, he took his hand and he reached in there. Took, he reached into what, Zach? Carcass? Gross. Reached into the carcass and took out the honey. This is gross. Went on eating. Came to his father and mother and he gave them some too. Didn't tell them where it came from. Uh, but he told them not that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Why are... why? Why is that verse there? Why is it there? It's just gross, isn't it? Is it there for a reason? It is. Um, where did he take the honey out of, Zachary? Carcass. So bees went into the carcass and built a nest, a hive there, and made honey there, and he reached in there and took some out. What, what is it about the carcass that's a problem, other than the fact that it's just gross? Is that a problem for Samson in particular, church? It's a problem, right? It's a violation of his vow. The Nazarite vow specifically prohibited him, Brother Garcia, from touching a, a dead body, whether it was a person or an animal. It was prohibited uh, by someone who was under that vow of, of, of separation. Uh, it was just one of those outward things that would mark you as... Uh, as especially set apart for God's purposes. It was simply a visual symbol of your having been set apart from that which is unholy for God's holy purposes. That's what the purpose was. But it was God's way, one of God's ways of, of visualizing that. It seems strange to us today, but it was one of God's ways of visualizing the vow the person took. So, uh, here, Samson has dishonored his vow again. He's dishonored his vow again. He got away with the lion thing. <laughs> he got away with going into the vineyard, dishonoring his vow. God protected him there. And rather than being turned around and sent back home, he decides to just keep going on and keep dishonoring his vow. And And sure enough, that's exactly what he's done. His wrong decision and sort of misapplication of God's protection leads him further and further and further away from God's will. That's how it goes. When trials come and we don't allow God to 
correct us through the trials, um, if we're not careful, we just head further and further and further down the same road. Um, that catches up with us. Samson organizes a feast. It's evidently a wedding feast. See verse 10. Uh, so his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made there a feast, for so the men, uh, so for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass, verse 11, when they saw him, that they brought 30 companions to be with him. He didn't take any friends with him. These were Philistine men that were recruited to be uh, his wedding guests. Um, verse 12 is interesting, and this is Samson's famous riddle. Uh, Samson said unto them, Seems like he's just having a little bit of fun at the feast. Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. You ever been sitting around and, you know, you're just talking and joking around and maybe somebody has a joke or a riddle and I think this is, this is what's happening here. I will now put forth a riddle unto you. Uh, if you can certainly declare it uh, me within the seven days of the feast. The feast went on seven days. This was a marriage uh, festival or feast. It went on for seven days and at the conclusion of seven days, the tradition was the wedding, uh, the marriage would be consummated and would be completed. Uh, so they had seven days to figure out the riddle, he says, find it out. Then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 changes of garment. Okay, there's going to be a prize. Verse 13, but if ye, if you all cannot declare it, figure it out and tell me, then shall you give me, give me 30 sheets and 30 changes of garments. He would get a prize. They said unto him, put forth thy riddle that we may hear it. Now, do you remember the riddle? Do you, do you remember much about it? It's, it's here in verse 14. I want to stop for just a moment and let you see it and understand it and, and think about the significance of it. And, you know, you remember that the Holy Spirit has recorded this and scripturated this for us for reason. It's not just entertainment. Um, the content of the riddle, verse 14, he said unto them, so Samson says to the guests at the wedding feast, this is the riddle. Uh, what, what's he talking about is the idea. What am I talking about? Uh, out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. What's he referring to? Out of the eater came forth meat. This is uh, meat in the sense of food in, in general. Uh, and or out of the strong, something strong, came forth sweetness. Now I realize, Gary, that's not a riddle exactly like we would tell today, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a riddle, okay? Um, well, has he had a recent encounter with something that would be a ferocious eater? Eater? Has he? It was a lion, right? And uh, has he had an encounter with a lion that had something sweet come out of it? He has. So evidently, uh, he's referring to the lion. This is the riddle. Uh, he's referring to um, his experience with this lion. Um, what have we already said about his, his choices regarding the lion? I'm not talking about the tearing it, the renting it in, in God's strength, but the fact that he ate the honey out of it is, uh, is that a big deal? Other than being gross, is it a big deal? Big deal because it was disobedience to God, disobedience to the vow. Is it something to joke about? Yeah, let me ask you a question. Is sin ever something to joke about? We do. I don't know if you do, but sometimes people do, right? People have a tendency to joke about their sin. 
think back to before you knew the Lord as your Savior, maybe, maybe that was something that you did. The joke about all the terrible stuff you did. Um, I don't, you know what I mean. There's, there's a tendency in our sin nature to joke about uh, sin for a few reasons, probably. Um, one, maybe as a way of managing the, the guilt or the conviction about the sin. Maybe we, we try to kind of put that off by joking about it, minimize it by joking about it, treat it as something light, not as something serious. That sort of assuages our guilt, or it def- it's a way that we defend ourselves against the conviction of, of the Holy Spirit. Make light of it, joke about it. I think that's exactly what Samson is doing here. He's making light of his sin. He's making it into a riddle. What he ought to be doing is confessing it to the Lord and asking the Lord for strength to obey him. Instead, he's talking to these guys in a place where he shouldn't be, making light of his sin, telling a joke about it, a riddle. Uh, Lord, help us. (laughs) Help us to not make light of our sin. It is our sin that necessitated Christ, the Son of God, who was sinless, going and dying upon the cross. That's not a light thing. That's a pretty heavy thing. It's not something to joke about. Lord, help us to never make light of our sin. It's, it's a serious thing. Had serious consequences for Christ our Savior. Men were unable to solve the riddle. And uh, they're probably concerned, Brother Ray Metchik, that they don't want to give up all the stuff that they're going to have to give up if, if they lose. And so they go to Samson's new wife and they threaten her to coerce the answer or entice the answer out of Samson with the understanding that if they threaten her and scare her, she'll do that. She'll go and entice the answer out of him and come back and tell them and they won't lose the contest. Verse 15 says this, it came to pass on the seventh day. I think that was a strategically significant day for Mrs. Samson, uh, if you follow. It came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband, that he may declare unto us the riddle. Go and do what you need to do to convince him to tell you the answer, or else we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. They literally threatened to burn their houses down. And Gary, maybe they meant it. Have you called us to take that we have? Have you called us to this wedding celebration to take our stuff? Nuh-uh. They said, nuh-uh. You go and get this answer so that we don't lose our stuff. We're going to burn your house down. And your dad's house too. She begins to manipulate him. Verse 16, Samson's wife wept before him. I think ladies understand that their tears are hard to resist, Gary. Right, ladies, you know that, right? None of you have ever been pulled over for speeding. But, but if you ever were, you'd just cry, right? <laughs> Am I going to get away with this, Brother Garcia? <laughs> it's not a good strategy. It might be effective, but it's not a good strategy. A lady's tears are hard to resist. Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me, you hate me, and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people. They were her people. 
not his, and has not told it me. How could you not tell me? I'm your wife. He said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? I haven't told anybody. No big deal. I haven't, I've not told anyone the answer. She wept, verse 17, before him the seven days while the feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day, it was a strategic day, he told her, because she lay sore upon him, and she told the riddle to the children of the people. Men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? She told them, and they told him. Uh, and he said unto them, If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. How do you suppose uh, she felt, ladies, about being referred to as a heifer? <laughs> Gary, I don't think that's um, going to be good for a new marriage. By the way, you wouldn't plow with a heifer. You wouldn't do that. So what they're actually saying is they understand, or he understands. What he's saying um, is that you, you broke the rules. You, you wouldn't plow with a heifer. You don't do that. He's, so what he's actually saying is that you didn't play by the rules. You didn't play by the rules. That's how you won. That's what he's saying there. He knows that. And so he's telling them that. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, verse 19. He went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them. These be not children of Israel, but enemies of the children of Israel. Samson was upset, angry, and goes out in his anger and slew 30 men, took their spoil, he took their stuff, and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. He went and killed 30 guys and took their stuff, including their garments, and used that to pay off the men who answered the riddle. What's the significance of that? What's the significance of that? Go back to verse 4, please. Go back to verse 4. God had a plan for Samson's life. The vow characterized that plan as holy and righteous and set apart a life that would be lived for God. A life that would be lived yielded to God for God's purposes. The same call that is upon our lives today, a life yielded to God for God's purposes. Um, in this part of Samson's life, he's not, he's not living that life yielded to God for God's purposes. And yet one way or another, God's going to use him to begin liberating his people from the oppression of the Philistines. One way or another, God's going to do that. He's going to work in Samson's obedience or he's going to work in his disobedience. He says pretty much that here in verse 4. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines. For at that time they had dominion over Israel. They didn't understand that God was at work. They didn't understand, his parents, that God was going to work in his disobedience if 
he couldn't work in Samson's obedience. Not God's plan, not God's desire, but God's will going to be accomplished one way or another. No doubt, Gary, it's strongly implied at least that at this time, Samson should have been making war against the enemies of God. War's not a good thing, but it's the way that God's people will be liberated from the enemies of God. No doubt that's what God intended for Samson to be doing when he's off doing other stuff right here. But what gets accomplished? What gets accomplished even in his disobedience? Uh, the first 30 enemies of God are conquered. The first 30 enemies of God are conquered. That's a remarkable thing. That's a remarkable thing. You can look at this and just kind of, you know, see, oh, a lion and bad choices and, and kind of move on. But I want you to see the principles that, that we should take from that. But I also want you to see how awesome the sovereignty of God is. We've been talking a lot recently about worshiping God, praising God. Worship and praise are two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, right here tonight, you can see um, one big reason that God is so worthy of praise and worship. He can accomplish what he chooses to accomplish no matter what. You may say, um, you know, God's will will be defeated by this person making wrong choices. God says, nah, -uh. my will will never be defeated. You can make wrong choices, and that will affect you, and yes, that may dishonor God uh, a little bit. But in the end, God's will is going to be accomplished, and he is going to be uh, honored for his ability to accomplish his will despite our disobedience. He's an awesome God. He's an awesome God. He is sovereign. He will accomplish what he chooses to accomplish. I had a conversation with someone this week, and uh, they said to me, hey, if God is so strong and powerful and sovereign, why is he letting all this bad stuff go on? Doesn't encourage me to think that he's sovereign. Is he sovereign, church? Does he have reasons for the trials that he allows. Church, he says he does. Verses like Romans 8, 28, he says he does. Does he allow bad things to happen to good people for good reasons? Does he? He let bad things happen to Job for good reasons. Uh, because of what God allowed to happen to Job, we got some really important insights about our nature and our response to trials and we're taught to stand guard against angrily questioning God when he allows bad things because God is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. Amen? Knows what he's doing. Does he know what he's doing, what he's doing when he allows the coronavirus pandemic? Hello? He does. does. Does he know what he's doing when he allows people to riot violently in the streets even? That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Is God allowing that? Is he allowing it? Do you think he might have a purpose for allowing it? Do you think? I believe so, or else he would not allow it. Can we see all of those purposes? I can't see them all. I can guess. 
and I can, I can guess. What I know his word makes it clear that he has purposes for that which he allows. He is always sovereign, and no matter what choices I make or you make, he is still sovereign and worthy to be praised and worshipped, even when he's allowing things that upset us. What happened at the end of Job? So Job lost his children. He lost all of his stuff, his wealth. He was left with a wife that told him to curse God and die. Uh, what happened in the end? Art, wasn't he blessed with more in the end than he began with? Wasn't he? God is just. He's just. Didn't look that way to Job going into the trial for sure. But as God dealt with him and blessed him at the end of the trial, he understood God had purposes. Brother Ray, how um, good is the Lord Jesus Christ? How good is he? Pretty good? Did he ever sin? Never, not once. Never, never thought a sinful thought, never did a sinful thing. He's God the Son. He's absolutely perfectly holy. Did God allow, did God the Father allow a very big trial into his life? Did he? The cross? Beaten, bloodied, killed, speared, buried. It's terrible. God have a big purpose for that, Gary? A really big purpose. <laughs> yeah, when Christ hung there upon the cross as the sinless son of God taking upon our sins, he was paying the price that we should be paying for the, our sins to satisfy the justice and holiness of God the Father. That's a pretty big purpose um, accomplished by the profoundly big trial of an absolutely perfectly good person the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. God accomplishes great good in allowing very big trials into the lives of people who are good. Lord, help us never forget that. Help us to keep praising you and honoring you and glorifying you no matter what you allow into our lives knowing that you've revealed that you are growing us in trials and accomplishing other great purposes in and through those trials. Um, there's lots of reminders that we should take from this chapter regarding Samson, regarding our sinful tendencies. And we should stand guard against those tendencies and we should pray and ask the Lord as believers to help us do that. That's all true. But let's also not lose sight of the fact that we see here a God who is sovereign and who will accomplish his will no matter what. Zach, does that mean I should just go out and sin? Because God's going to, he's going to be able to accomplish his will here in Trumbull, whether I obey him or whether I don't obey him. I just go out and sin then, right? No, Paul would say, God forbid. No. God desires that his people would live according to his word. Gary with his strength, right? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you tonight for your word.
It is powerful. It does not return void. Lord, you're to be greatly worshipped and praised tonight for your sovereignty, for the fact that you are a God who accomplishes whatever good thing you choose to accomplish, however, whenever you choose to. We cannot defeat your purposes. We praise you for that tonight. Father, I thank you tonight that the great trial that Christ endured had a tremendous purpose. He paid the price for our sins upon the cross so that we would not have to pay the same price in an eternal hell. Lord, thank you. A great good was accomplished through a tremendous trial. Father, I thank you tonight that your word is clear that anyone, man, woman, or child, who would turn to Christ at any point in his or her life and say, Lord, I, I confess I'm a sinner. I look to you to be my savior. I understand you died on the cross to pay the price due for my sins. And so I put my faith in you tonight to be the payment for my sins. Lord, I thank you tonight that anyone who would make that choice is forgiven in that moment completely and forever, eternally. great good was accomplished in a big trial and that good can be paid on to our account with you father through a simple act of repentant humble faith lord thank you so much i'm grateful i pray father if there's anyone here tonight who is unsure of their salvation Perhaps they've been trusting in their own good works you've made it clear with your word that we can't be good enough for you, it's only the goodness of Christ and his payment on the cross that makes us right in your eyes. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who's not sure they've made the decision to place their faith in Christ, I pray that he or she would speak to one of us tonight. Get that right before this evening ends. Thank you, Father, that we can know for sure that we are forgiven and that we have eternal life the moment we place our faith in Christ. Lord, thank you. Father, I love you. I thank you tonight. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.